Coming Back is a listener-supported podcast. To support the show and get exclusive access to podcast swag, giveaways, private grief hangouts, and more, head on over to patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. Support the show for as little as $1 per month and change or cancel your support at any time. Thank you so much for listening. Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after loss. On today's show, I'm talking to psychotherapist and author Julia Samuel, whose witnessing of her client's losses led her to write a book called Grief Works, a collection of real-life stories that helps normalize and validate the ways in which we all grieve. Also on the show today, a listener asked me to cover the topic of anticipatory grief, or grieving in advance of a loss. I'm Shelby Forsythia, an intuitive grief guide who speaks, writes, and teaches powerful truths on grief and loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to equip others with the knowledge to heal and remind them that they are not alone. Because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Coming Back. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I want to get into a common but not often talked about subject today, and that is the topic of anticipatory grief. A listener emailed me with the following request. She said, Hi, Shelby. I'm wondering if you've ever done a podcast on the way people grieve when someone is still alive. What I'm referring to is the experience I've had with my grandmother in the late stages of Alzheimer's. She is alive, but her essence seems to have drifted away. I would say I started grieving her at least two years ago, and I am sure there are others out there who feel conflicted about these feelings. Yes, absolutely, listener, you are so right, and thank you for writing in with this commentary and question. I am so sorry for the loss of the person that your grandmother was due to Alzheimer's. This is so common and affects so many people every single year. So what you're talking about in this note is the concept of anticipatory grief, the feelings of grief that you get before a loss actually occurs. This loss is most commonly a death, but you can feel anticipatory grief leading up to a divorce, a big milestone like getting a promotion or having your kids go off to college, or having to make a major move. Anticipatory grief, grieving before the loss actually occurs, is very, very normal and a huge part of so many of our lives. So I talked about anticipatory grief a little bit in episode three of Coming Back when another listener wrote in about her father who had Parkinson's. When he finally died, she felt as if she had already grieved him and so consequentially kind of felt left out and shamed when her entire family entered the depths of their own grief after his death. She'd kind of done a lot of her grieving of him before his death, and they did a lot of grieving after he was physically gone. And in that, I reminded her that anticipatory grief is neither good nor bad, but just a normal expression of our pain at knowing we're about to lose something permanently. Because what anticipatory grief is, is our minds and our hearts wrapping themselves around the idea that we are about to lose something. And this involves grieving all the little things that come between today, right now, and when this big loss, this final loss occurs. 
these small things can be loss of ability, loss of movement, loss of speech, loss of memory, loss of a home if a person has to be moved to an assisted care center. Anticipatory grief can include loss of time or energy or money on your part if you're made to be a caregiver for this person. And it definitely includes loss of a relationship because the relationship you had with this person before you knew the loss was coming, before the diagnosis was made or the divorce papers were served or you found out you were going to have to move, that relationship with that person, you will never be able to get back. You are grieving what will be a permanent change in the way your life normally operates before that big loss occurs. I mentioned a wonderful article in episode three. I encourage all of you to go back and listen to this episode. It's an article by a woman I met named Carol. Her husband was diagnosed with vascular dementia, and she wrote this beautiful piece on all of the small but significant things that she lost leading up to his death. So things like his ability to drive, their romantic relationship, paying bills together. This article was called The Atrophying of a Relationship, and it's just this beautiful, heartbreaking piece on the pieces of our relationship we lose before we actually lose the person themselves. And yes, all of that involves grief. Watching people slowly disintegrate is its own kind of grief. I really want to validate that for you today. You are grieving things that you will never be able to get back. The normal is gone. A lot of people have described this as feeling like a slow slipping away or feeling more and more of this impending doom or blackness in the future in relation to an event like a death. The popular grief website, What's Your Grief, reminded me that anticipatory grief can begin the instant that loss appears on the horizon. Once it becomes an option, anticipatory grief can occur. You don't have to know many details about the loss or see it up close to start to grieve it. Once death or loss or major change kind of enters our periphery as a probable option, we can start grieving. What's Your Grief actually writes, we are aware of the looming death and accepting it will come, which can bring overwhelming anxiety and dread. More than that, in advance of a death, we grieve the loss of the person's abilities and independence, their loss of cognition, a loss of hope, loss of future dreams, loss of stability and security, loss of their identity and our own, and countless other losses. This grief is not just about accepting the future death, but of the many losses already occurring as an illness, generally an illness, progresses. There are three interesting points that are different about anticipatory grief as opposed to the grief that occurs after a loved one dies. So first of all, with anticipatory grief, sometimes you'll have a caregiver element. So you might be taking care of the person as they're dying or leading up to their death. And this permanently changes the type of relationship you have with them and can lead to a wide range of emotions from gratitude for being able to perform this last act for them and with them to total and complete resentment that they're sucking so much time and money and energy out of your life. Second thing that's kind of interesting about anticipatory grief that you don't see with other types of grief is an element of relief. And listener, I think this is kind of the inf- the conflicting feelings that you were speaking of. But when a person dies or a loss happens suddenly, we don't usually feel relieved. We feel surprised or horrified or dismayed that it happened. But with anticipatory grief, when we've been watching somebody disintegrate or slip away for so long, and kind of sitting in that anguish and grief and sitting in others anguish and grief with them kind of watching all this happen, 
there's almost a kind of relief, a, a burden easing, like a lightness when the loss finally happens. It's like you're finally able to exhale. Whether it's a death or a divorce made final or a cross-country move that's finally over, there's no longer this big, scary, unknown looming in the vague but distant future. The worst has happened. Your loved one is died. Your loved one is out of pain. Your spouse is now legally your ex. You're not managing two houses anymore. Your dog is gone. You're not juggling two roles at work trying to swap positions. So with anticipatory grief, there can be an immense amount of relief involved that is not always there or doesn't always exist with sudden or unanticipated death. The third thing that's interesting about anticipatory grief is that it doesn't change or affect the level, the intensity of the pain or hurt or heartache that you endure once the loss has actually occurred. Sometimes people think that there's a fixed amount of grief, like a bank of grief. Like somehow if you grieve before the person has died, you've gotten 30 or 40 or 50% of your grief out of the way. But no, that's, that's not how it works, unfortunately. With anticipatory grief, you grieve before and then you grieve after a loss. You've got different things to grieve in the before and after. So anticipatory grief, while it does introduce grief into the picture sooner than it would than if there was a sudden death, it doesn't change the level of grief or pain that you deal with once the loss has occurred. You can't grieve in advance and get it out of the way, so to speak. So lastly, I want to leave you with some things to keep in mind if you're experiencing anticipatory grief. First, know that it is normal. We live in a world that likes to know what's coming. Our phones predict the weather seven or eight days out. So to know that something hard or painful is coming, but not be able to know all the ins and outs leading up to it or not being able to to kind of recognize in advance all the small losses you're going to experience leading up to it, of course, it would incite grief in anybody. There are people in your workplace, in your church, in your school, in your neighborhood, and in your grocery store who are all carrying anticipatory grief right now. You are not alone. Second, if you're experiencing anticipatory grief right now, ignore the at-leasters. These are people who invalidate your small but significant and sometimes invisible losses by reminding you, gently and not so gently, that the person or pet that you love is still technically alive, that your divorce isn't technically final yet, or that the doctors technically might still find a cure for your diagnosis. In these moments of being met with at least, it's immensely helpful to find other people who are going through what you're going through, whether that's an Alzheimer's caregiver community, a Facebook group of fellow cancer patients, or a support group for parents getting ready to become empty nesters. And if you don't see the group you're looking for, do not be afraid to start it. I guarantee you're not the only person in the world losing what you're losing and grieving it in advance. Even if you're not a caregiver, you might benefit from books or websites or podcasts designed for the people that take care of who caregive and witness the dying. Third thing, remember that anticipatory grief oh, is not giving up on the person, relationship, pet, child, or job that you love. And it's not an indicator that you don't love them. Anticipatory grief is just an indicator that you know a big loss is coming and you're trying to process it as best you can. Mourning the elements of the person that have metaphorically died, 
their ability, their memory, their speech, their independence, etc. does not mean that you're ready for them to die. Fourth thing, now that you know that you're experiencing anticipatory grief, decide consciously what would you like to do with the time you have left. One of my favorite exercises surrounding grief, anticipatory grief especially, is to write down my ideal scenario. Like, if the days, months, and years leading up to this loss went exactly how I wanted them to go, what would they look like? Would you spend more time with your loved one? Would you throw a going away party before a big move or a big career change? Would you write a letter to your future self? Would you take a vacation as a family one last time? Would you buy your dog his favorite ice cream treat every single Friday before he died? Really, really think about this, grief growers. Planning in advance, I've said this for, for grief anniversaries, Mother's Day is coming up, anniversaries, anniversaries of the date of death. Planning in advance does wonders for our spirits and for our minds and grief. Even if we can't make everything happen on our ideal scenario list come true, we can try our best to get as close as we can. Once we know our ideal, we have something to aim for. And that way, when the loss does happen, we're left with fewer regrets and a greater sense of life well lived, a greater sense of using our remaining time and the remaining time with our loved ones wisely. So go visit your loved one every Sunday and read to them or go through scrapbooks together. Finally, buy that traveling microphone off Amazon so you can record their voice or their laugh or their stories as they tell them. Make art from their paw prints. Write thank you notes to your coworkers that you've been putting off or budget and save and take that family vacation. There's kind of a phrase uh, coming to me right now that's, that's coming out like make you and your anticipatory grief the ultimate power couple. And what I mean by this is to make your anticipatory grief, once you've acknowledged that it exists and ah, that's what I'm going through, make it work for you. Now that you and anticipatory grief are in it for this foreseeable future until this loss occurs, how are you going to empower each other? How are you going to equip each other to better handle the inevitable grief that's coming your way? Have a conversation with your anticipatory grief and be like, look, I know you're here. What are you asking me to see or look at more closely? And then just see what comes up. Listener, I hope this helps you cope with the loss of your grandmother due to Alzheimer's. My heart is so, so with you as you witness this happening with her. If you'd like to talk about the pain and the reality of anticipatory grief with me this week, join me for Facebook Live this Monday, May 14th at 1 o'clock p.m. Central Time. Just like my Facebook page, Shelby Forsythia Intuitive Grief Guide to be notified when the broadcast begins. Next up, we'll talk to Julia Samuel, who is dishing out a ton of powerful truths on loss and telling us all about her new book, Works. Julia Samuel is a grief psychotherapist who has spent the last 25 years working with bereaved families, both in private practice and with the NHS at St. Mary's Paddington, where she pioneered the role of maternity and pediatric counselor. She is the founder patron of Child Bereavement UK, where she continues to play a central role. Griefworks is her first book. Julia, thank you so much for joining us on Coming Back Today. I'm so thrilled to have you here from across the pond. I know we have a lot of listeners in the UK, which is very, very cool uh, to talk about your new book, 
grief works, as well as kind of what led you to becoming a psychotherapist and working with grief on a regular basis. So if you could please start us off by telling us your personal loss story. Well, in a way, mine is um, in relationship because my both my parents, my mother and my father, had significant losses by the time they were in their mid-twenties. My mother had her father, her mother, her sister, and her brother had all died. And my father, his um, father, and his brother had died. So they were kind of very English and old school and never talked about the people that had died. But in the not speaking about them through our upbringing, there were these black and white photographs. We didn't even barely know that who the people were. But of course, I think it imbued me with um, a kind of unspoken loss um, in my system. And that when I started um, volunteering as a therapist, I was immediately drawn to grief. And at that point, it was unconscious that it would be anything to do with my own upbringing. But now I look back, um, that must have been a very important early influence. Yes, absolutely. And I'm kind of fascinated by this, the grief of unspoken loss. And mm-hmm. I kind of picked up this theme, uh, reading your book, Grief Works, that holding everything in very tightly is, I don't necessarily want to say an English form of grief, because we see that kind of nationally and internationally. But can you talk about how English grief is maybe perhaps different from other cultural griefs? I think there's a historical context um, which is influenced by world wars. So, you know, we go back more than 100 years. Queen Victoria was the kind of poster woman for grief. She made grief and grieving and all the ritual mourning very fashionable because she never went out of her widow's weeds after Prince Albert died. So that was then sort of set a trend and everybody um, wore black and purple and grey. And then the two world wars killed hundreds of thousands of um, men and everybody in both the wars was grieving someone they loved, a husband, a a son uh, um, or a father. And so there was no capacity. All the the deaths happened um, were never repatriated, so there were no funerals. But also there was a kind of biological strive, striving to survive, to get on with life, and no one really could grieve. At the same time, medicine began to actually be successful, and death was taken away from the home and into hospitals and into mortuaries. So there was a kind of big social change that happened. And I think it meant societally people managed, but emotionally, if you think of your bandwidth as a kind of string, you have kind of joy one end and pain the other end. If you block your capacity to feel pain, you incrementally also block your capacity to feel joy. So your emotional depth is narrowed, your bandwidth is foreshortened. So you can function fine, but your openness and kind of open-heartedness to receive and give feelings, whether they're love or sadness, is much less. Does that answer your question? It's rather a long answer. 
Yes, it does. But I, I, I like that a lot because I think grief is influenced both by what society tells us to feel about grief, but also in these smaller microcosms, what our families tell us that they believe to be true about grief and grieving. So I'm curious to how you went from a family that kind of carried these unspoken griefs to becoming someone who speaks about grief so candidly and is so open with all of your experiences and the experiences of others by proxy with grief. I mean, I think the more, I mean, I, as a therapist, I think the drive to become a therapist was I get so much from the connection to others. I'm always much more interested in what's going on in them on the inside than what they look or are doing on the outside. So I think the work kind of gives me something. And the more I've worked with people who are grieving, whether it's the death of a partner or a child or, or a, um, a sibling or, or a parent, the more fascinated I've become in the whole process. But also why I wrote the book was because I came, you know, 25, 28 years of doing this, I became increasingly frustrated and angry that there is so much ignorance about grief. And so that not only were people suffering because someone they love had died, but they were feeling they were doing it in quotes wrong because they weren't getting over it as quickly as everybody else expected them to. There's this unbelievable sense of you should be getting on after a few months. And so people would turn some of their or existing pain against themselves, like they you know, should be doing this better and they would self-attack when they're already hurting. And so I wrote the book in the hope that it gives both the very personal experience of what it's like to grieve, but also some basic understanding of what to expect. I think one of the most interesting aspects of your book for me is its format. I haven't picked up a grief book yet. I've read a lot of grief books, but I definitely haven't read them all. The format of it was so that they were personal stories in each segment. So you would have parent loss and there were three personal, similar but different stories and loss of a sibling and three personal, similar but different stories. And they had running themes that were similar in all, but the stories and their growing up circumstances and what they the myths that they believed to be true about grief and even how they treated themselves and others in their lives were all very different. And I really, really liked this kind of looking in the window of someone else's world of grief, because some of these stories I read and I was like, oh my gosh, I totally resonate with that. That's exactly how I grieved. And for others, I would look at them and be like, oh my gosh, I don't even know what that's like, but I have seen someone else grieve in this way. And so I think there was a broader understanding that was brought to me of the ways in which people grieve uh, by your book that I found really, really neat and really helpful. I wasn't expecting that when I opened the cover. I wasn't expecting all these small personal accounts of, and I loved it. Um, And I'm kind of wondering what, uh, maybe if you have a top three of like the biggest pieces of misinformation that we have about grief or that walk into your office? What are the three biggest pieces of untruth, I guess, surrounding grief that you see? There are so many. I think maybe the the top one is that you need to forget and move on, that you need to get over it and get back to your life. And I think it's about remembering 
and adapting and changing internally where you have to re-engage with life in a different way. That the, the, the loss of this significant person in your life changes you. People often talk about a new me, but also it's never about forgetting. It's because you the love, so this point too is the person has died, but the love that you feel for them hasn't died. That stays alive in you and that will stay with you for the rest of your life. And I think often people get very confused about that. Like, you know, am I holding on too much? Should I be, you know, pushing them away? And I think paradoxically the the reverse is true. That by allowing them to be part of our life through telling stories or cooking their favorite recipe or wearing their bracelet or playing music they loved, it allows you to find expression for that love that still exists. And that gives you energy to then get on and live your life that is without them, if that, if that makes sense. Yes, yes, absolutely. And we talk about on this show a lot that, well, I, maybe I've never phrased it in this way, but grief is an energy that needs to go somewhere. Yeah. It needs to move, I think. And And I felt a lot of this in your book as well, that kind of starting to see the cracks in the armor or the breaks in the stoicism or kind of the beginnings of the crumbling of a facade is, is very helpful and almost very hopeful because then the grief is moving. It's not sitting. I know you can't see me, but I'm doing this motion where like my two fists are in the middle of my chest and like locked in here. And, and that emotion I think is so familiar to so many who are grieving of if I just hold all of this in one place, it won't move and it won't, affect me. And and the opposite is true is that grief is this fluid experience that that needs to be lived through us. It's almost like another like it's a piece of us. It's, yes. Say that again. It's almost like the weather that it, you have to let it come and hit you like the storm. And what I talk about in the book is that you need to develop I talk about them as pillars, pillars that support you to weather the storm, but you can't block the storm. So I guess the third um, mistruth is that um, is about the pain. So I, people are kind of, I can't bear this pain, this pain, you know, I've got to stop the pain and will do anything they can to block the pain. And in very much in the way that you're talking about, Shelby, I say, None of us want this pain, but pain is the agent of change. Pain is the thing that forces you to let yourself know the reality that this person has died. And, you know, when everything's tootling along very happily and we're content, nothing changes because why would it? it? Pain is the thing that forces us to feel uncomfortable and that we have to adjust. And so the armoring, it's often the things that you do to block the pain that do you harm as opposed to being kind to yourself and developing systems that support yourself, that let you weather the pain, let it run through your system and change you and reshape you in some way. What's the first thing that you say to someone who's afraid of change? They look at it and they they see it. They know they'd be better off if they learn the tools to weather the storm, to make the changes, but they're just not 
willing or maybe ready to take those steps yet? How do you walk them up to that ledge? Well, I would accept that that's where they're at. I wouldn't try and wrestle them to the edge. Hmm. I would hold both. This is where they are now. They, it's too, it seems too much and that they need to listen to themselves. Only they can know what they can manage and what's right for them. And also if they kind of feel forced to do something, you instinctively are defensive. So I would acknowledge this is where you're at and this is, I absolutely respect that. And I would also hold the other idea that at some point, and maybe we'll get to this and maybe we won't, that you can allow yourself to try this out in a different way. And then I might make a suggestion of what they might do of looking at a photograph or writing a letter to the person that's died or going for a walk and talking about the person that's died. So they begin this new relationship with the person that's died. Yeah. I like that a lot because it's it's softer. It's a softer introduction to the notion of change because when so much is already changing, to acknowledge that we need to change or pivot or or be doing something different can be totally mind-blowing. So maybe I don't want to change right now, but I could do that one thing maybe next week. Yes. I, I kind of want to pivot in this moment as we're talking about coping with grief because you mentioned a couple of times in the book using kickboxing as an outlet for releasing what you take home from your clients. And I, and I want to talk about how you discovered that, how how it helps you, and if you have any other coping mechanisms as well. Because I know for my work as a podcaster and a grief worker in the city of Chicago, sometimes I tell people I feel like a container. Like mm. my job is to literally be a container for these people's experiences. And so you have to have outlets for that. I'm very curious about how you discovered yours and maybe if there's any more that didn't appear in the book. Yeah. So, I mean, I certainly discovered very early on from seeing clients that grief is in the body. They feel it in their bodies and they transmit signals that hit my body, that come into my body. And that's often why people don't cross the street and say hello to you when they're grieving because they're frightened of, of the discomfort, of the disturbingness of what you feel when you're looking at someone who's, who's hugely distressed and, and you can't fix it. You know, you have to sit with them. Um, so I felt that in my body, you know, very, very early on when I was working. And I just tried different things out. So I, I did yoga and that was I sort of like, I found it frustrating and I was still stuck with this discomfort in my stomach. And so I tried other, other exercises and then I find kickboxing and that was like, yes, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> As I punched these pads and kicked and kind of released some of it, because anger is an expression of hurt. It's like, oh, you're hurting me. And the kind of sense of like an internal shower I felt afterwards was an amazing, amazing feeling. Yes, I like that a lot. And it's kind of a a nice, I like it because it's a balancing contrast between yeah. grief therapist and kickboxer. And you're like, all right, there's got to be somewhere that's dynamic, that's in motion, as opposed to, I don't want to say there's a passivity in, in sitting and listening, but there's definitely a more controlled, you know, yeah, it's yeah. an internal space. It's not an active 
uh, motion coming. I just loved reading about it in the book because I'm like, yeah, those two would go together. That's exactly what I thought. I was like, that would go together. They are. It's a brilliant balancing because also sitting and listening, my attention is completely on the other, for the other. My emotional um, energy is entirely focused on the other person. And I kind of calibrate myself to attune to what their needs are so I can respond accurately to where they're at. And then kickboxing is basically all about me <laughs> so that I can, you know, I can think about myself and be in relation to myself physically and psychologically and let myself go as opposed to kind of manage myself to, you know, moving my hands together like they're moving through a river so I can listen to the music and respond to the other person. This is, and I also, I can be totally insensitive and thoughtless and, you know, um, all the opposite of what you're meant to be when you're a therapist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I, I did sort of mention in the book, um, but not that clearly is that I, what I watch and listen to. So I never watch scary, or bleak films. I only watch things that have happy endings, stories that have happy endings or are funny. And I think, again, that's like the sort of rebalancing of my day job. So where, you know, there are no, you can't sort people out. There's, if someone's died, that is not fixable and the work is to find a way of living with it. So I watch um, Modern Family, you know, where, they always have a kind of resolution and sit around the table together and laugh at the end of the episode. And um, that releases me from the tension. Yes, I actually did an entire podcast episode on finding grief in my favorite TV show, which is The Golden Girls. And right. I, I feel the same way. I tell people, I'm like, I need a lot of fluff in my, <laughs> in my everyday life. I need more fluff than the average person. And everyone wants what sort of sends me links to these, you know, Manchester by the Sea and gives me these incredible, devastating memoirs of people of loss. And I, I really, I, that is not where I need to go. Yes. And you're like, I appreciate you, but I'm going to go turn on Modern Family now. <laughs> um, yeah. Yes. I like that this book, it seems like so many books on grief are born out of frustration for what exists in the world and maybe a desire to have a bigger conversation. And I'm wondering even logistically kind of when this book came around as an idea for you, how it gathered itself into this collection of stories, how you chose which stories were in the book, which ones were not. So kind of this whole knitting together process, how did that happen for you for GreefWorks? Pretty amazing actually, because, um, I, an agent came to me and asked, suggested I write a book and I was not at all keen. And then literally about four or five months later, it was like a, 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 an email popped into my head, which was, you know, go and have a look at that idea of writing a book again. And I remember I was walking around my kitchen and the title, and I was writing things down for the title and the title literally just appeared. Grief works, and you know it has three meanings, which is that if you do it, it works, and you adjust. 
that it's hard work physically and psychologically and that the stories are stories of grief, their works about grief. So it has kind of two levels. That oh, I, I just got chills. I love it. Yeah, yeah. And Freud, Sigmund Freud, who is the kind of father of all therapy, was the one who first talked about the work of grief. So it kind of ticked so many boxes. And then the only way I understand grief is by through the experience. I've learned through the experience of other people. So the only way I could really talk about it, and I did it for the proposal, um, was telling stories. And then those stories, I worked with some from the past, which had remained in me, and they were alive in me. I had no idea I would remember them so clearly. You know, I never used a note. I never used another person's book. I just sat down with my laptop, and they came from my being. And, you know, obviously things were altered, so they wouldn't be recognizable, and sometimes I'd bring in little instants from another. Some of them were... um, two or three stories together, but they were just in my system waiting to be written. And then other ones were existing couples or or people I was working with now, and I could record them, and so I used that. So it it came very organically. It just – and the structure for the book was totally just waiting to be – I knew it would be stories – and then very naturally, it would be, rather than circumstances of death or particular themes, it would be by relationship because that's what I'm most interested in is my relationship with the person and their relationship with the person that's died. So it was a real lovely pleasure. That's amazing after being approached and be like, well, I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> a very yeah. lovely turnaround. Amazing, amazing. And I think it was just not forcing it like I let it just sit there and then it obviously just did its own work and then it just said okay come on I think in the end I thought you're going to regret not doing it give it a go mm-hmm. and what's the worst that can happen you know you don't get it published well you know that isn't a disaster um and I'm so pleased I've had such lovely lovely messages from people how it's helped them and helped them understand themselves and help their family understand them. And that's been the amazing thing is how like it's getting out in the world in the way that I never could just sitting opposite one person in my room from week to week. It feels like it's extended my reach um, in the most lovely way. And I feel very, very touched by people's response. Yes. It feels like um, the pillars of strength that you go over in this book are kind of the connecting points between people that puts grief and what we need in grief into language that people can understand and communicate to others. What are they? Can we do a quick like uh, rundown of your pillars? Do a quick rundown. So the, the idea is people often talk about having a black hole inside them. They feel like there's a hole inside them. And so it's building up systems and habits and attitudes that support them to, as we talked before, weather the storm. And so the just I won't go into them each individually. And they are on my website, which I think you're going to do a link to. There's a sort of full information on my website. But there's your relationship with yourself, your relationship with the person that's died, um, your uh, focusing, so kind of 
getting in touch with the person that's died by sort of breathing in your mind and body limit structure is that eight no let's see i'm opening the book right now oh we've got expressing our grief ways to express and time and time your relationship with time i like these because they're different ways of thinking about you know I think in America, we still lean on the five stages very, very heavily. I still see it coming up in like sitcoms and on movies and TV and things like that. I'm like, why are we still thinking that this, you know, is the way to go? And so to see things like time and self-care and focus kind of portrayed in a different light, or even the pillars of strength, we think of strength and it's like a keep calm and carry on mentality. It's it's the opposite of that. It's it's almost structure or foundation or, um, yes, it's the things you need. Yeah. And, you know, I am a big admirer of Kubler-Ross, who's stages and stages, but it's the language, and people say it with such authority, you know, I think she's in the bargaining stage or she's in the anger stage. And you and I know, and anyone listening who is grieving knows, you can be angry bargaining, um, and furious in, in an hour. You can go, you can run through all of those, you know, and that you haven't even finished breakfast. So, you know, it's, it's unhelpful, I think. And I think often this thing of this idea of, of continue that you finish one and you move on to another, it's very mechanistic. And what I talk about the whole way through is this, ongoing adaptation and process i talk about it as accommodation that you you know there are times that you know maybe three or four years down the line you're not thinking at all about the person that's died and then you smell tomato soup and it reminds you of your mum or your partner and you're literally it feels like they died yesterday and obviously the loss is very very intense for the first while much longer than anybody wants but it isn't something that you get over. It isn't something that is finished. It is, it is a lifelong process. So what is it in your life, in your grief, that helps you come back the most? Love. Mm. Yeah. I think both. The, I think letting myself love the people that have died and finding ways of letting myself love them, but also letting myself love and accept the love of others when I am sad or distressed or missing the people that have died. So it's, it's both. But I think love is the only thing that really helps us at the end of the day. It's when love dies, it devastates us, but the only thing that really heals us is love. Which is a bit of a conundrum. It is. And yet, it's the best remedy for anything in the world. It is. It's really the thing that allows us to rebuild our trust in life and find meaning and hope is through love. Well, I have kind of a bonus question for you before uh, we kind of wrap up and we tell people where you can find your book. And that is in the introductory email that I was sent by you. 
there was this note that you were a very close friend to Princess Diana. And I'm kind of just curious about your relationship with her and the feelings that you have about the ongoing grief that continues regarding her death. Yes, I mean, I I feel very lucky that um, I knew her and we had such a, a lovely friendship. And I think it shows the the level of her kind of authenticity and uh, her capacity to love as a as a woman more than as a princess that she still lives on in all the people that remember her and think about her. And they didn't even know her, but they felt that they did. And I think she influences those people, you know, well after she died. Um, and I think that's an incredible legacy. I think it's an extraordinary thing. She live, does live on in the hearts of others that remember her and love her still. Yes, and that's so much of how grief works is that continued living almost in in the bodies, the minds, the hearts of yeah, others. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you see it in particular anniversaries like this year is the twentieth anniversary of you see it at other times, you know, and I've been all around the world and there are a lot of places that I didn't even know. And I went to um, Havana and there's a whole Princess Diana garden. I had no idea it was there. Oh. You know, and so she's, she's, she, went, she went everywhere. <laughs> all over the world. I love oh, it. Amazing. Well, Julia, I would love if you could let us know where people can find a copy of GriefWorks for themselves. Um, also, where they can find you, your work, if you're making any appearances in the near future. Just what do you got and what's next? So um, you can buy my book from, is it Barnes & Noble? Is that what it's called in the States? I'm not so good in Yes. All, it's in all good bookshops. And I know it's in Barnes & Noble. You can certainly buy it on Amazon. And um, a books from my website. There are lots of podcasts and articles and blogs, and the eight pillars of strength. And that website is www.griefworks.co.uk. And there's also a place where you can. This would be for the UK actually. Support find support for yourself but a way to contact me if you wanted to write me a message. And then I have a contract to write a new book. Um, at the moment, it's called Life Works, and it's about how we adapt and change through the transitions of life, through, through the different phases of our life. Um, and it's in the very early stages. But it's going to be the same kind of format where I do it through stories, through my work. I'm looking forward to the legacy of insight that you're going to be leaving us with all of these books. I think they're so powerful in opening up conversations on grief. I mean that, but also identifying ourselves in the grief of others, which is such a cool, it's such a cool experience. It's so easy to, to self-diagnose, to diagnose ourselves, but to reach across and identify with others who are 
in a same space, a similar space, in a similar experience is very, very powerful. So I've so enjoyed reading that in your book. And just thank you so much for coming on, coming back today and giving us insights on coping with grief and and finding finding love. Wow. Well, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for inviting me. I, just one last thing I would add is that friends and family, the people who aren't grieving are as important as the people that are grieving. Hmm. Um, there is a section in my book about how friends and family can support you. But I think sometimes we leave them out. And I think the more the general public have an understanding of what grief is like, um, even if they haven't yet experienced it, and of course we all will at some point, um, the better it is for everybody. Yes. If you're not the griever, you're going to be in that first, second, third circle of influence. Yeah, absolutely. At some point or another. Yes, absolutely. Ah, oh, thank you. Thank you, Shelby, very much. So that's all for this episode of Coming Back. Thank you so much to Julia Samuel for joining me all the way from the UK to talk about letting ourselves continue to love the people we've lost, accepting people from where they are in their grief, and easing the self-attacking we sometimes do when we're grieving. Julia came back by taking up kickboxing and continuing to watch funny movies and funny TV. You can find a link to Julia's work where you can find her book Grief Works in the show notes. Join me for Facebook Live this Monday, May 14th at 1 o'clock Central Time, where we'll talk about anticipatory grief, grieving before a loss actually occurs. If this show has transformed the way you see grief and loss, please support me and this show on Patreon. Head on over to patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia where you can pledge for as little as $1 per month and get some really cool podcast rewards for doing so. If you liked what you heard this week, you can also support the show by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and telling a friend about coming back because you never know what someone you love is going through. Thank you so much to Mr. Addy Goldstein, who composed our theme music. You can find me on Facebook at Shelby Forsythia Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at Grief Guide Shelby Forsythia, or simply ShelbyForsythia.com. If you'd like to leave a question or a comment for a future show, leave a voicemail or text 312-725-3043 or email me like our listener did today at shelby at shelbyforsythia.com subject line podcast. As always, my dear grief growers, it was beautiful sharing this space and time with you today. I see you. I am proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world. And I love you. Because even through grief we are growing.